0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 4. Today is Part 1 of a two-part series where the panel is discussing the results of a survey for field archaeologists and cultural resource managers put out by Charles J. Poleska earlier this year. We discuss a variety of topics generated by the report itself, discussing everything from representation of women in the field, what constitutes a professional archaeologist, how to enforce ethics in the field of archaeology, and higher education versus employability in the field. Today's panelists include Kristen Bastis, Chelsea Slotin, Kirsten Lopez, Sarah Head, and Emily Long. There's a lot to cover in this report, so let's get to it.
2: Hi, I'm Kristen Bastis, and I'm here with the Women in Archaeology podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the results of a survey for field archaeologists and cultural resource managers that was presented by Charles Poleska.
3: So, one thing that I was surprised and pleased to see, I guess on the the gender side of things was that it's a pretty even 50-50 split between men and women working in the fields, which is nice. You know, I'm not sure that it necessarily reflects, for example, the composition of the PhD program that I'm in right now, which has significantly more women than men, but it is nice to see kind of an even split. (laughs) So we'll start with the good yeah there's
1: there's only about a two percent uh the female group only has about two percent higher in it than the male group and that's not to my opinion that's not statistically significant i would like to see like they asked how old are you in the next set i would have liked to have seen them split the gender up by age as well as everything
4: else that he ends up splitting up by gender
2: oh right yeah that would have been helpful
4: I was just going to say, it's likely then we would have seen probably
5: a decrease in women in the field later on due to major issues that you can see he was bringing up in the survey. Like why people would need to have a change. Could it be family, childcare, healthcare, health care, and that kind of thing. And if you need to see if the, there was a decrease of women at a certain point.
1: Well, there is overall a significant decrease in age
5: mm-hmm.
1: as it moves from the 20s most people are in their 30s and then their 20s and then there's a huge drop off when you get to the 40s because we go from 147 we go from 30% in their 20s to 42% in their 30s to 15% in their 40s and then it drops hugely again into the 50s and the 60s uh,
3: yeah although it is important to note and and Charles Poliska does mention this in his court, that some of this might be due to sample biasing because the places that he was posting this, you know, it was around Facebook and, you know, on some internet message boards, but the places where this was accessible were places that are more likely frequented by younger individuals. That is a important consideration that the numbers might not be, there might not be as stark of a drop-off at 40 as this report is indicating, and I think definitely think that there needs to be more research done into this oh yeah no this
1: is considering what this is and how it's my understanding it was pretty informal as far as the survey was concerned but it's an amazing starting point he got quite a bit of information out of it
3: definitely oh as i'm saying for a field where it's sometimes can be difficult to find good statistics you know this is really great so
1: you know we're we're where the the people that responded to this. It's a good fifty fifty split between the men and the women. It starts to get super interesting to me when we start looking at I think he does break education down by gender too, didn't he? Yeah, there's a lot of really there's a lot of stuff in here where I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. I wish he had done X with it.
3: Right. Although this is one person who wasn't getting paid to do this. Right. So
1: Right. I'm not I'm not angry at him. I'm just like, ooh, now that we have this, wouldn't it be cool
3: if Sure. It'll be great to
5: see whatever step he takes next with this information and where he can go to collect more information.
3: And I'd be really interested. He mentioned several times the possibility of extending this, maybe getting like the SAA involved. You know, it'd be really great to see other organizations, other archaeological organizations kind to of step up and, and keep this ball moving forward.
1: In the topic of gender, he, he did ask people about harassment in the field. Mm hmm. I personally think it's interesting that the category of I have witnessed slash been a victim of teasing someone else sexually or making lewd jokes. A lot of these are worded in a way where you don't have to come out and say, I was a victim, but I think it's interesting that it's still the largest category with the most responses, 60% of the responses was, I have seen sexual jokes and in adult-themed innuendo, but was never something that anyone openly felt comfortable, uncomfortable with. I find that interesting because that, the way that's worded, it's the safe category where you're like, tacitly agreeing that you're aware that harassment's happening, but you it still gives you an out?
2: I don't think that that is um, admitting to actually seeing harassment. I think it's because it says at the end of the question, but nobody seemed to be offended. So therefore, it wasn't considered harassment. If someone was offended or, you know, made that um, statement, you know, either in private or whatever, then their answer couldn't go in that box. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I um, see what you're saying. So because I because I answered there, there, because you know, in the field, I found it quite normal to have jokes and innuendo, and but the women that I worked with and the men that I worked with. Nobody ever said they were bothered by it or acted like they were bothered by it or they just sort of considered it the field humor. And I know that there's varying degrees of people just not expressing that they're offended by it, but I think that is the reason why there's so many respondents in that thing because I think it's a common thing and I don't think very many people say anything about it in the field.
3: Yeah. I also think if you're in the fields, you know, and and depending on the type of field work you're doing, but particularly if you're going somewhere where you're camping out together or you're all having to stay at a hotel in the general vicinity of the site and you're there for two months together and you're spending all of your time with these people, Mm -hmm. you know, you do get very, very comfortable very quickly. Mm -hmm. My only
1: concern with... Because we've talked about this before. And my only concern with that, and, and of course, you know, I was in the field. I've always said that archaeology is just one big dick joke waiting to happen. Because everything in it is just some kind of sexual innuendo. But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm comfortable with that. But that doesn't mean the person next to me is. And I know that when I come out of the field, and I haven't cleaned up my mouth yet, the things that I will jokingly say shock people who are not part of the field. Yeah, for sure. Um, which tells me that the things that I am saying are potentially unacceptable right. in polite society. Right. So I wonder how many people in the field are actually shocked by it or uncomfortable around it and just don't say anything because they don't feel like they can. not So do true. you
5: think if the questions had been separated more, that like... I've seen these jokes and were uncomfortable and then another one that says I've seen these and heard these jokes and was uncomfortable do you think the statistics would have changed dramatically or been about the same
1: I don't know because I feel like there is an unspoken pressure in the field to not admit when you are uncomfortable I feel like there and this is just my personal feeling I don't know these statistics don't back up any opinion one way or the other really it's just people stating things and it's interesting to see what they say but until you can really break these down further You can't really use them to defend one position or the other. I just, I feel like the way that the field is set up and the way that the culture of the field is set up, that you're encouraged not to be a boat rocker and you're encouraged not to come forward when there's a problem, especially if you're ever hoping to get another job, at least on the CRM end of it. I don't know what academia is like because I don't work in academia.
5: Um, Going back to what uh, we were discussing a a little bit earlier was how there seemed to be a pretty even split of um, men and women in the field. Well, going to the field, I personally, I've mostly worked with men in CRM, and I might be the only woman on a 20-person crew. And I do think it does create a very different culture. I don't know how much it would change. Like I was just recently on a project where there were three other women were like, Oh my gosh, thank goodness. There's (laughs) going to be another woman on this project. And granted the jokes didn't change, but it just felt a little more comfortable. And so I just wonder how the atmosphere really changes. And if that statistic is really true, that it's so evenly split when we still have this kind of Unique culture that happens in the field where yeah, you have a lot of innuendo and a lot of crude jokes that would it really dramatically change If there were more women in the field or would there be like or if it would change if people are more aware of the fact that This might make people uncomfortable. Just a thought.
1: Yeah, no, and that's why I'd like to see that the age group thing Broken down more just to see where the women are. Are there a lot of 20-somethings in that women group? And if so, that means that they're recent college graduates, which means And don't anybody who's like a recent college graduate take this the wrong way, but you haven't been working in the field that long, as opposed to people in their late 30s, early 40s who have been there for maybe 10, 15 years. You know, those are the people that have been immersed in the culture the longest, who have probably had the issues the longest. So that's why I'd like to see that age split just to find out where the genders are hitting, you know. Is it a recent thing that we've got a 50 50 split in the field? Because I'm like you. When I first started out in this, it wasn't uncommon for me to be the only girl in the group. But as I, at the end of this, like last year even, my field crews were either almost completely equally split or there were actually more women than men digging holes. It didn't change who was running the crews. It was almost all men running the crews, but the actual field workers were almost an equal split. But that's been 11 years.
3: Yeah. And actually, speaking of of kind of positions of power, another thing that wasn't broken down by gender was the positions that you hold within the fields. You know, are you project manager, are you a crew chief, are you a lab tech, principal investigator? What are you? Are all of the women, you know, these lower non-managerial positions? So who who has the power in a field site? Right. And
1: just from my personal, like, like I said earlier, just from my personal observation, it's still very heavily a male-dominated part of the field. Those supervisor positions, the field crew, even this, even the GPS operators. One of the last jobs I was on, I was the only female GPS operator, and there were like 11 of us. So there was no real good excuse for there not to be more women trained on the handheld tremble Mm -hmm. doing GPS, especially since most of the people there were trained when they got there. So that means that they selected 11, they selected 10 dudes and one chick to be the GPS person.
4: Do do
2: you think that has anything to do with, um, like, did they say who wants to do this and you volunteered? Or were they, or were you told you're going to do this? They did do that, but I know I wasn't the only girl who volunteered. I just know
1: that I was very driven to be the GPS person that time because I really, really wanted to learn it. So I kind of made a nuisance of myself. So I don't know if they just gave it to me to shut me up or if they were like, okay, you've been doing this forever and a year. So sure, you can walk around with the GPS because we trust you with the equipment. I don't know if that was the factor, because most of the girls who were working, most of the women who were working in the field with me were much younger than I was. So it could have been an age thing. It could have been an experience thing. It could have been a lot of things. It just When you have that many open positions and you have a near equal split of men and women, most of the men who were operating the GPS were the same age as the other women on the crew. So it's like you're choosing men who are younger to do the GPS thing, but the one woman you pick is 10 years at least older than most of the people there.
2: you know. Sure, but also you have to take into consideration if they don't speak up, if the younger women don't speak up, then they're not going to get the responsibility.
1: Well, like I said, so, I know some of them did say they were interested, and I don't know how pushy they got about it.
2: Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, there's there's some there's some issues on both sides. There's the issue of young women have to learn how to speak up for themselves. And then there's also the employers have to be aware that young women tend not to speak up about things and they need to do a little bit of a better job.
3: And they need to listen when women do speak up. Right. You shouldn't have to be pushy, annoying about something to get the job that you want. That's true. To accomplish something.
5: That's true. I think within all that, too, there's the unintentional sexism that plays within that, that um, those that are maybe creating the crew, they would never in a hundred years say, they're like, oh, no, I'm the most, you know, forward-thinking person on the planet. I would never consider myself sexist. But in that atmosphere, sometimes we're left out and... Like your example, of you were the only GPS person. I've been assigned as the GPS person and will not be handed that GPS because, ooh, this other person will not give it to me. And they're like, oh, no, it's not because I'm sexist. It's just I think I could do this better. It's like, supposed to be my job.
1: That's when you hit them with a <laughs> shovel and you say, give me the goddamn GPS unit. Exactly. <laughs>
5: it's
3: the dangers of casual sexism. Exactly, that's a good way to put it.
5: Casual sexism. And I'm just I wonder if if that's playing a lot in the the field too with these issues where women are getting overlooked and not intentionally, but maybe it's just this, this undercurrent that's still occurring. Oh, I totally think that's it.
3: Mm-hmm. This was an old boys club for so long. Yes. That adjusting, you know, and even if you get really great younger people who have grown up in a world that's more supportive or approving of feminism. That's not saying that it's great. There's still work to be done there, too. Right, (laughs) But, you know, that's very different from someone who grew up in the 50s, you know, when that wasn't really a conversation that was even being had at, at that time you know, just the cultural background that they're coming from is so different. And I don't think it's malicious. It's just a lack of awareness, maybe. I have only malicious, I have only felt that the discrimination against
1: me has been malicious in maybe a handful of situations. Most of the time, I really feel like it's just the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. And no one even thinks that it could maybe not be that way. But the problem that I see is you've got the old guard, which are still a part of the old boys club. And that influences the young men who are coming into the field because, I mean, to throw out the P word that everybody hates, Those guys come in and just by the privilege of being male, they get treated better. Whereas the women who are coming in just by being women, they have to work harder to prove themselves in the eyes of the old guard. And it's like, these women who are coming into the field are just as qualified as the men that are coming into the field. They shouldn't have to work twice as hard to prove to you that they can use a goddamn GPS. It's not that fucking hard, guys. (laughs) But it's, no. but it's like giving up the remote to the television, you know, it's just like, they can't do it. And it's, and there's no logical reason for it. I mean, if you and if you just kind of gently point that out, you're just kind of like, hey, why can't so and so be the GPS person today? They don't go well, because she's a girl. They'll come up with a million different reasons as to why she can't do it. But it all comes down to because she's a girl. Yeah. (laughs) Fortunately. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and then we will come in and start talking about wages.
0: Jenny McNiven, host and diva of The Struggling Archaeologist's Guide to Getting Dirty, brings a witty, personal, and often musical view of archaeology. From personal experiences to just telling you about something she really loves, You'll always be informed and entertained. Listen to The Struggling archaeologist Guide to Getting Dirty on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash struggle art. Let's get back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone, and we are back and Kirsten Lopez has joined us. Hello. And we are going to jump in talking about wages both broken down by gender and by education cuz that was really interesting.
3: Yeah, so one of the things that I found particularly interesting looking at the the wages by gender, particularly what w- with what we were talking about a couple minutes ago is that women make or women are a larger percentage of the less than $10, 10 to $12 per hour and the 12 to $15 per hour, and then men and women are about equal in the 15 to 24 range anything over $25 an hour, men are a greater percentage of the people making those. And given our earlier conversation about the age of the women who are in these crews versus the age of the men and kind of the power dynamics, I wonder if more of the women are younger women because those lower salaries do tend to go to the non-managerial positions and the people with less experience. So I wonder if some of the the difference that we're seeing is because there are younger, less experienced women coming into the field and taking those lower-paying jobs, but they haven't been around long enough to kind of work their way all the way up.
1: Well, pie-in-the-sky Maybe I'm being too optimistic. Well, n- kind of. And the only reason I say that is because I have worked with women who are over 40 in the field before... It's not very many of them. I think it was, I think there's been like maybe five of them grand total that I have encountered and none of them were managers. They were all still shovel bums. Compare that to the huge number of men who are also over 40 that I have worked with who are also shovel bums. So, you know, that's why I'd really like to see the whole gender thing broken down by age, because yes, there are people in the field who are 40 and older, But there seems to be more of them are men than women, Yeah, you know, so that that skews the data, the wage data as well. Mm -hmm. Also how many of the women who are in the 30 and up category, how many of them are actually the business owners? Yeah. There's a large number of CRM, especially small CRM firms that are owned by women. I would assume you're making more than $30 an hour if you own the business, (laughs) I would hope.
4: I would think that as well, considering that, like you're saying, the working your way up is one thing, but like starting your own. A lot of women, especially as we've mentioned on the show, is that we have a tendency to more or less have a desire to prove ourselves. With the overt masculinity of archaeology, you have a lot of personalities within the female cohort, I think that have that very go-getter attitude. And while if it's difficult to move up, I think a lot of women in archaeology would be like, well, I'm just going to start my own then. Versus push and try and push to get up within a company that they're in already. And I could be wrong on that, but that begs that question.
5: One thing too, and and going off of what you were talking about CRM companies I've seen that a lot of the women who work within the office itself the, the GIS folks the the laboratory analysis a lot of that are it's conducted by the women so maybe that's the higher wages per hour reflects that and so I wonder then the breakdown are of the women with those wages that are actually in the field itself as opposed to doing archaeology but in the office itself than that is.
1: I can guarantee you there's nobody digging holes for thirty bucks an hour. Yeah, no. So all of your shovel bums are falling into this eighteen and under.
4: Twenty four and under. Depending on on where you're at. Some of those are higher wages, especially when you're looking at the government fair jobs, jobs in enough. the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that they
1: pay hella good out west, and I also know that it's kinda hard to break into if you're not trained out there to begin with. So, okay, so fair enough, but in my experience, and this is my personal experience, and I have mostly been a Midwest, East Coast person. Or am I on the West Coast? Where the hell am I? Anyway, <laughs> I don't know where I am. My experience has been I have never made more than $18 an hour digging holes. And the one time I was making 18 actually, I was running a lab. It was a field lab, but I was running the lab. So I wasn't technically digging at that point. I don't I think the highest I've actually made digging was $16 an hour. And that's with 11 years of experience. So yeah. the supervisors start around 18 at least in the
4: Midwest. Yeah. On the west, uh with a bachelor's, I have made 20 nice. an hour digging as a lowly Field tech, usually those are where the wages are standardized um, and that looking at, I don't know what all they take into consideration, but there is some sort of wage ranking um, in certain states that will lift that hourly above what I would make with regular companies or outside of that federal or state position with in the same company, which is another wonky thing that I run into on occasion, but that's a whole other (laughs) topic. And I wanted to kind of pull or tease out on this graph that they have, and I don't know if they discuss it too much, are the choose not to answer and transgender answers, which tend to fall kind of right in the middle, which part of me wonders if that is a numbers thing, because that seems to be where the majority of the answers are coming from is in that 20, or I'm sorry, 30 to 18 an hour, those two sections. And then you have a little above that and then a little below that where you get a little bit of those answers, but the very bottom and at the very top where you seem to have fewer people, you don't get that as much it's much more people are wanting to elect to answer that question or very you know it could be an age thing too older people
1: in general are probably making the 30 30 bucks or more because most of them probably have worked their way up there well just if you've been in the field that long i would hope you're making a good chunk of money out of it and if you're looking at the older demographic they don't tend to be they tend to be very binary about their gender, so probably that's why you're not seeing it as much there. At least that's what I would think. I don't know. I'm I'm literally pulling that out of
2: my ass, though. Yeah, the, the other thing, too, is, you know, we have to remember that this is a sampling of our whole profession, too, and some of these $30 an hour, the difference between men and women could be the men and women who answered this survey and the actual statistics could look much different up there
1: yeah he he really i mean if he's going to continue on with this and i think he he did mention that early in. basically he just needs to interview some older people for this uh just because of the technology gap he was saying so yeah if he takes this to like the saas and just quizzes everyone who comes in the door that should fix that that uh that gap right there.
4: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know that they're looking at possibly doing a similar type of survey, not a duplicate, through the essay itself somehow. So that's still to be seen. But I've heard rumors and buzzings of that. Um, so it should be neat to see if that pops up any time in the next year or two.
2: Yeah. And I, and I hope they open it up to non-members because yeah. uh, one of the questions should be on the survey, are you a member, uh, if not, why, money? <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. a uh, ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> so, you know, that, that should definitely be a question and it should be open to non-members to get a truer picture of the field because you know, I I haven't been a member of the SAA for <sighs> over ten years now. And it's because the my places that I work won't pay for the membership and I can't afford it.
3: Yeah. On the survey they do talk about or maybe it was slightly above, but they talk about if some sort of if you did belong to a group, if you didn't belong to an organization, why? You know, and money was was up there because especially for those national memberships, they're really pricey. You know, some of the, the state, local, regional ones aren't so bad. Right, yeah. But national memberships, going to conferences, they cost so much money. And if someone's not funding that, and you're only making 10 bucks an hour, you probably aren't going.
4: Yeah. And that whole that the technicians are so underrepresented with everything pretty much (laughs) when it comes to decisions, when it comes to everything from how to deal with other technicians because, you know, if you're fired, you just move on, but everyone runs into each other so often. Mm-hmm. It's hard to really get a handle on how to manage that. And I've heard people be like, well, I just don't work for that company. Or it's kind of like, well, you know, I don't. And then I run into them and another company. And there's, you know, a lot of in and outs with that. And whether it be from attitude to work ethic, to harassment, to abuse, it's hard to pinpoint that or report it because there's so little accountability within our industry um, at, at that level, at that lower level. What
5: do you think we can create as a community of archaeologists in order to take that issue to task so that that accountability, accountability is there? I mean, teachers have teachers unions. Do you think something like the RPA or the SAAs or even something else could be created to in order to protect? and keep companies and agencies accountable like what do you think we could do
4: different options i mean there's mm-hmm. so much that other industries do to try and i mean not everyone's 100 percent successful but there's a lot of things that other industries have in, in place and we don't <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i know that the rpa was originally created to help manage that however oh. it's because it's an elective uh, membership you know, you don't have to have it to practice. And that's where personally, having experience in other fields previous to archaeology, where I had to uphold an ethics in order to practice, there should, I think, be some sort of minimum standard that nationally we should have in order to be practicing. I would hope even at the you know, shuffle bum or tech level because those are often people that I, I mean, there aren't like tons of them, but you know, there's a handful of people that I've run into in situations where I'm like, you know, <laughs> I keep running into you and I don't know if I want to. And you know, some of that has to do with upholding of ethics and work ethic and such. So it's, I think, something that would be if the RPA extended a lower membership level to uh, technicians because as is, you have to have your master's or higher to belong there, and in some states where you have to have your master's to, or to be permitted, such as in Oregon, it's only the people that are going to be in management positions and higher who are going to hold that RPA and have that accountability if they elect to do so, but none of the techs will.
2: Right. So I have a question about that Oregon permit thing. So is that a state thing, or what? what do you mean permitted?
4: Yes, it is a state thing. In order to dig, it, so it's a very similar to I'm trying to remember the uh, the ARPA permit. It's similar to that uh, to hold an ARPA permit or an Oregon permit, which is equivalent to ARPA. You have to have a master's degree and so many so much experience excavating or practicing working archaeology in Oregon specifically. So that is Oregon-specific. It's a lot more stringent than other states. They do require that for anyone who has, like you have to have a permitted person on a survey crew. They have issued the permit to that whole is to these standards. And who who issues the permit? SHPO.
2: SHPO issues the permit. Interesting. I have not ever worked in a state where that is the case. And I've worked in 19 states. (laughs) Just not Oregon.
4: (laughs) (laughs) We're we're an oddball.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of a Shippo permitting a person or uh, a company or anything.
1: Well, this is a good segue, actually, talking about the professionalism and education and all that. He does... In the report here, the hourly wages do get broken down by education. And he compares this to, I do believe, and, and there's an adjusted annual income as well. And he compares this to the federal earnings report for what they, the government says that you should be making as an archaeologist. And also there's a section where he asks people how they feel about being a professional in the field. So I think this is a great way to segue into that. So first off, with the the income, we do see... I think it's a pretty predictable curve here. When you look at the hourly wages by education, I think that's fairly predictable. At least it's predictable to me because that's that's been my experience in the field. I still feel like it's people with education are undervalued, but
2: you know, actually what jumps out at me on that graph is the people there are more people with master's degrees who are making twenty five to thirty and thirty dollars and up an hour an hour there are many, many more of them than there are PhDs in that category.
1: I have been yeah. told that a PhD will price you out of the field. I was told specifically not to pursue my PhD unless I was going to do academia because with a PhD, I would not be able to find a job.
2: Yeah. And I was told the same thing too when I was tech and uh, yeah, but it's just, it's just kind of weird. To see that, like, the people with master's degrees are more of them in those categories.
3: Right. Well, and as someone who is actually currently working on their PhD, (laughs) I... Don't listen to us, Chelsea. What? Don't don't listen listen to us. As much as I genuinely enjoy being in the field and digging in the dirt, you know, I'm, I'm here because I want to continue in academia, and I realize that any field experience I get after completing my PhD is probably going to be of an academic nature. You know, in a couple months in the summer, I'm not going to be digging year round. Yeah.
1: So there but is a call for PhDs in the field. It's just interesting. even more limited than, you know, a lot of places won't let you crew chief without a master's. However, as we were speaking, as we were talking about before we started recording, it's been pointed out by several people online, um, Bill White being one of them at Succinct Research about uh, degree inflation in the field and the newer trend towards hiring people with their masters to do something as simple as a phase one digging, not supervising, but digging. I am of the opinion that that is actually kind of detrimental to the field. And it's devaluing a bachelor's degree, which, if you've got a bachelor's degree, you've you've done all of the basic requirements needed in most states, obviously. To dig, why are we bumping those people out of? We're basically telling those people their degree is not worth crap, and they can't do anything, even though they're most of them are getting trained to do CRM work. Yeah. So that's my opinion on the matter, anyway.
3: So I think that that is true. I think a lot of that is also supply and demand. I mean, when the economy went down several years ago, the number of people who went back and enrolled in grad programs skyrocketed. And I think from a business perspective, if you ask anyone if you could pay two people the same amount and one of them had less education and less experience and the other one had more education and more experience, they're probably going to choose the latter. And that doesn't mean that the the person who just has a BA or has less experience isn't as good and in many cases they could actually be better than but i think it's a reality and not just in our field but right. just kind of of the job market today yeah it yeah. seems
1: to be a problem in a lot of science fields i'm i'm hearing it from a lot of people the problem there is though is you've got people who have been in the field for a long time who only have a ba because they don't they either don't want a masters or they didn't have the money to go pursue a masters And it's not like you're making enough money working to go back and get a master's. We're pricing veterans of the field out because they don't have the required degree, even though they do have oodles of experience. We're choosing people with a piece of paper over people with experience.
4: Right.
2: Yeah. And that that is bad for the field. I think I was actually a victim of that in my my field tech days. I became a crew chief with a BA and... Um, they hired two people with master's degrees, and I trained them in the company procedures and they got promoted over me,
1: yeah, exactly,
2: and it was hard to do that. You know, I told my supervisor that I knew that was going to happen, and he assured me that it wouldn't, but it did <laughs> um, <laughs> and then an edict came down shortly thereafter that. Only people with masters would be assistant project managers, which would basically be the people who were running larger projects. Sometimes there'd be a crew chief that went out and and just did uh, you know smaller projects, but that didn't have to have a master's. but So that spurred me to go you know, back to school. And I would also say to anyone who's listening who's thinking about getting a master's degree, don't pay for it. <laughs> you have to get a tuition waiver because they have money to pay back your loans.
1: Let's take a real quick break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about this, the education inflation and how it's really hard to pay for that master's when you're making 18 bucks an hour
0: all these things we make no apology are the study of archaeology but we don't do dinosaurs no. did aliens build stonehenge did the easter island statues walk did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show money beady blokes, you will see, are a staple of archaeology.
1: And we're back, and we're still talking about education and income and uh, degree inflation.
5: I, I love the point, like the idea, of, like don't get your master's now unless you can um, have it completely waived, the tuition waived. Uh, when I went to grad school, it was one of those things where I was constantly told, like, oh, you get your master's. It will practically pay for itself because there are so many jobs in Mm archaeology. You'll get hired by either a federal agency or a company. It's so easy. And so I definitely went a little bit naive and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep working for the Forest Service and I'm going to have a job right out of grad school and it's going to be magical, you know, and. three years later it's like it wasn't magical um so i i just i have a question so when when
2: was that that you heard that what year was that when you heard things like that
5: um let's see so it was probably like when i started applying to schools around 2009 That's when interesting. That, that was still because i would have said by 2009 that
2: that was something in the past i find that the
1: Departments around the country are, in my opinion, less than honest with their students about job availability and the value of the education that they're receiving. Um, yeah. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is I have found that a lot of them maybe don't create the pie in the sky stories like uh like Emily was told. But they certainly don't discourage you and they don't give you the reality of the situation either. Um, I know what Emily went through with her master's, that was the same line that was fed to me for my bachelor's. And then by the time I graduated, that's when the economy tanked and nobody was getting jobs, (laughs) you know, and everybody was working for as little money as, you know, the, the job market deemed to pay you regardless of what your education was and it has gotten better over the years I mean I've definitely seen a recovery but I also see people who are graduating who think that they're going to come out in this field and they're going to do two or three years digging holes and then they're going to magically get their master's in something and then they're going to be a supervisor and then they're going to be a PI and then they're going to be a head honcho somewhere and they're just going to rake in all this cash digging holes. And I'm like, I really hope you like living out of hotel rooms. (laughs) Because that's (laughs) about what it's going to get you if you're planning on sticking
4: with it.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the best advice that could be given is to go actually get some experience in between a, a bachelor's and a master's and to be a little bit more aware I mean I know going into into my masters and it was a little different because it was overseas um, and they weren't really selling you a pie in the sky but telling you that they would prepare you for a broad range of possible careers and I will give them credit you know at the end of the I don't remember what semester but towards the end of the degree we had a day where they invited a lot of people who'd done the program before to come in and talk about what they were doing give you ideas of, you know, how to stay in the field or take those skills and transfer them elsewhere. But yeah, education is not a golden ticket, says the girl getting a PhD. (laughs) I think the flip side
5: of that, just going back to what you all were saying um, earlier about however, like, you know, a lot of the techs are now being told they have to have a master's, even though it's the master's itself has it it's been a good thing because more people are saying you have to have a master' master's for a tech job. It, it hasn't, you're, you're, it's still true that it's not necessarily paying for itself. So it's kind of both sides are represented there where it's like, yeah, the education for itself uh, itself isn't necessarily make, letting me make $30 an hour, but at the same time, it still opens doors, kind of throws you in the middle.
1: See, and I am so completely against this whole master's degree to dig holes thing. Mm -hmm. Let's be freaking honest about this. You can have an associate's and dig holes. I mean, you don't need a bachelor's degree to dig holes. You just don't. A lot of what gets done in CRM, you can tell I'm completely disillusioned with the field at this point. A lot of what (laughs) gets done with CRM, you could do with an associate's degree because you don't get trained to do CRM. While you're in school at any point, everything you learn about the field, you learn in the field. So why are we making people waste four to six to eight years of their lives getting these advanced degrees when everything they're going to need to know, we're going to teach them once they get out there anyway. It's a waste of time and money. And if you're really a company and you're like, I want to pay people as little as humanly possible because raw income, you can pay somebody with an associate's a whole lot less than you can pay somebody with a master's degree. I mean, if that's really the route you're wanting to take as an employer.
2: I think that, I think that the reg, that the bachelor's route, the, because the way the system is set up. So generally speaking, you don't do your field school until you're between your junior and senior year, or maybe even after your senior year. So when companies ask for a bachelor's and a field school, you know, that's typically because the field school comes late in the bachelor's education. You know, that's sort of saying, well, that's the way we always did it. It's not necessarily the best system. It's just what has been done since CRM was established. And prior to that, actually. So, yeah, you, you do have enough wherewithal to dig holes, even without associate's degree. I mean, you could come out and do it. It's not a difficult job. I think the one thing that a bachelor's and a field school does maybe reassure the company a little bit that you do have the drive, that you can finish things That you do have a tiny little bit of field experience, even if it's academic excavation and not really a field survey, but that at least you've been out in the field a little bit, six to eight weeks, and you know kind of what being in the field is like. It's hot work, and you're in the dirt all, all day, and you're sweating, and so at least you know that going in, and that's where that knowledge comes from, is your field school.
1: I trained several interns and it was kind of like this running joke between the the forestry archaeologist and myself that we took the interns out and made them dig holes just so they would know not to do this because (laughs) with the exception of like two of the people that we took out there with us and we're in Indiana, mostly southern Indiana in the summer. It's hot. It's muggy. There's ticks. There's mosquitoes. It's just, you know, I mean, it's pretty land out there. It's, It's beautiful land, but it's nasty and we're working in the heat of the day you know so you get out there and a lot of these kids would still in college at this point so they had they're like seniors on their bachelor's degrees they spend a day out there digging holes and they don't want to go out anymore it's like well this is uh this is what you're going to be doing you know, and yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, you're saying, oh, well, they've at least had an academic excavation. I don't feel like that prepares you for CRM. You know, it's, a two
5: it's very,
4: very different things. They're
1: very different. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're still in the dirt. Yeah, it's still hot. Yeah, it's kind of unpleasant. But an academic excavation is so radically different from a phase one, which is 90% of what you're going to be doing, even if you're just yeah. doing a walkover. Yeah,
2: you know? no, that's true. I'm just saying that, you know, at least they, that, in a field school, you're out in the environment. Yeah, yeah, you are.
1: I feel like this is a topic that we definitely need to talk about in a later yeah. episode.
4: So I want to jump in on on some of this. Uh, so with the masters, the master's tech thing, one reason, and I'm not saying that this is an excuse or a reason for people to request a master's as a tech. I think that is super lame. Those who go straight from a bachelor's into a master's, to pursue archaeology and haven't done CRM ever, um, I have met some, uh, they don't qualify into any sort of supervisorial position, and they're put directly into a tech position because that's what they qualify for. I have seen at least one case where that particular person was put into almost a uh, fetch person, to where they would do sort of the small, awkward jobs like doing filing and computer work, but not anything substantial, such as writing. It was mostly like data entry and or you know, cleaning, repairing screens, and such, which is, I think, more of an intern-ish job <laughs> yeah. than something for someone with a master's degree. But this is where, You know, they don't have the field experience, but they, so they can't supervise and they end up, you know, sort of in this weird in-between position until they do get enough experience. So it's kind of like, well, we want to hire you, but we don't have a, you can't be hired full-time because you don't have the experience to do any of the full-time work because the full-time work in CRM is not digging holes. So. If you're going to be only qualified for digging holes, you're going to be doing a lot of weird things in between until you gain that experience. So I think that might be part of it is sort of that influx of people who went back or just continued on if they graduated, right, like you were saying, as the uh, economy tanked and just kind of continued on instead of doing anything, which if you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. With that, the pay may be a little sketchy. Such as I think on here it's a slight spike in the masters around twelve dollars to fourteen an hour from before, whereas before it was nil to non-existent up until then, and then it kind of goes up with the the curve next to the bachelor's and then surpasses it after the twenty four but I think a lot of that is what those those beginning ones are Well I
1: don't see a lot of companies that hire around the, tel- the ten to twelve anymore. A lot of companies start at 12. So that might be part of the reason why there's so many people ranking in at the 12 to 14 and 12 to $15. Yeah. It's just companies don't hire at that anymore. I'm of the opinion though, if, cause I hear what you're saying with the whole people with bachelors or uh, with uh, master's degrees who aren't qualified for supervisor positions yet, but I've also seen the reverse of that, where just because they've got the master's, they've been put in charge when they clearly don't have the uh, the, the know-how yet.
2: Yeah. But I don't think that employers should be, CRM companies should be requiring a master's degree for right. a field right. position. Like but If, no, you, if hire, you get hired on as a field tech with a master's degree because you went straight through and now you need to start at the bottom, actually, when you're going out into the field, that's fine. But I don't think a CRM firm should be requiring you to have a master's degree to get a field tech job.
1: Yeah. I'm with you there. Like, if you, yeah, if you've got a higher degree and you want to work for, if you want to dig holes, then that's up to you, but you shouldn't be required to have a higher degree to dig holes.
4: Yeah, Yeah, definitely not. That I actually haven't seen. Personally, I saw the discussion on it as well (laughs) prior to this, and that was the first thing that came to mind. And it could be that someone's just trying to tap into that. And pull that market if there's a high number of people that are sort of in this weird limbo that no one else wants to really touch because they feel obligated to pay them more, but they don't have the experience. So I don't know. That's my only guess and throw it the wall, see if it sticks theory. (laughs) And so that's my two cents on on that bit.
1: So let's morph this from education and income and morph it into the discussion about professionalism and who... Who is a professional and who isn't a professional? This is
2: Kristens. Anyone who gets paid to do archaeology is a professional. I don't think that you have to have an advanced degree to be considered a professional. When RPA started, I was already an archaeologist. And, you know, I felt a little offended that as a professional getting paid to do archaeology for a couple of years, I couldn't join a professional organization. I agree. So, you know, I did, after I got my master's, I did join RPA and for a couple of years when I could afford it, (laughs) I just let it go because it doesn't really help you get a job, doesn't have teeth, the standards don't have teeth, there's nothing that they like really do if you aren't a member or if you don't follow those the ethical guidelines. So I just didn't see the benefit of it. And it excluded a huge number of professionals in the field.
4: Yeah. And I've seen that a lot too. And it's it's interesting to me. I think I've been watching it fairly closely to see what's going on. Um, I am a member of the SAA and I'm involved to a very limited extent in sort of uh, seeing how some of these ethical and uh, sexual harassment guidelines, the new ethics that are coming in soon, hopefully, are going to be upheld in the SAA or not. And kind of, there's been a lot of bounce back about how the RPA has conducted itself and how it's apparently now they are trying to stamp down a little bit on some of those guidelines and you know, they're gummy teeth, but they're starting to do something uh, here and there. On their website, they do have a, a running sort of post of the different violations of ethics that they're pursuing. So I thought that was interesting. This is the SAA? No, this is the RPA. The sorry. RPA. You know, it's it's one of those things that there has been a lot of talk about, the fact that people were excited about it at first. And then it's kind of like, well, how is this actually benefiting me? We're paying you for what? And letters? Yep. <laughs> and, you know, which is all fine and dandy if it actually helps you, but it's, that's where it came into the does it have teeth and teeth only work if you have to be a part of it. I mean, if you can opt out, you know, what are you going to do? If I violate the ethics, I'm just going to leave and I can still do what I'm doing. I just don't have those fancy letters. And it's very regional as to how those are looked at. Yeah. I know there are some regions that hold it in high esteem. And they are revered as more credentialed RPA members by agencies in certain areas. But in most areas, it's not the case. And so it's, it's hard to, you know, it's a very regional, regionally cultural, culture specific when it comes to archaeology as a profession as to whether or not that's something that should be or shouldn't be continued. But I think it, I think it should be something that needs to change, but it does need to become something else. I mean, it's good to have that professional sort of certification, I guess you could say, or licensure, some people might call it. But that way, like you're saying, you have some sort of teeth to those ethics violations as well as being like, hey, this is mine. I have this. You know, I have this as kind of like when nurses graduate from graduate school and they go on, but they can't practice until they pass that test and get that the RN or CNA or any of those licensure requirements comes with later part. It's not just the degree. And archaeology is kind of unique in that our profession is not licensed and is only degree-ish specific. I mean, you don't even have to have an anthropology degree. That's true. I would love to see some kind of
2: license or certification for for all archaeologists, including field techs. I but I don't think that making them have a master's degree is sufficient. One the can right you, to go. You, you can have a master's degree and not be very a very good archaeologist. This
1: concludes part one of our panel's discussion. Stick around for episode five to hear the conclusion of the conversation. Thanks for listening. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcasts at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McCloud, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening.
5: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com